And before we dig into God's Word, let's pray. Lord, thanks that we're able to be together, and I thank you for the opportunity that we have to have some fun together, to really dig into your Word and, and, and learn from your truth. I pray that as we study your Word, that we wouldn't just be readers, that we would uh, not just be hearing with our ears, but really listening to your Word, your Spirit, that we would be active learners today and have a desire to apply your word to our lives, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to start uh, this morning in, in Luke chapter 18. So you can go ahead, if you want, get your Bible ready. We're going to lo- look at a passage from Luke chapter 18. But while you're finding that, I want to start with a baseline question. A baseline question. I want to know, by raising your hand, are you ever, have you ever been wrong, ever. Okay. You know, in general, I, I honestly, I, I expected, when I wrote that question, I thought, uh, I'm expecting all, if not most people in the room to raise their hand. I mean, because most of us don't want to be seen as arrogant. Most of us don't want to be seen by others as prideful. So I expected lots of hands on are you ever wrong or have you ever been wrong. Here's my next question. So that's the baseline. We've all just admitted to each other that there have been times when we've been wrong, right? Next question. If you are in a disagreement with someone, doesn't matter who it is, could be your spouse, could be a friend, could be a neighbor, could be a complete stranger, in a disagreement with someone, you have a certain conclusion, you have a certain opinion, and the other person that you are in conversation with has a different opinion, a different conclusion than you do. In those situations, what percentage of the time are you right? 10% of the time. In those conversations, you're right 10% of the time, at least. At least 10%. All right, 10% of the time, you're right. How about... 50-50, 50-50, like 50-50% of the time I'm right in those situations. There's a disagreement, about half the time I'm right. All right, 99% of the time I'm right, and you're wrong. 99, all right, I appreciate your honesty. I mean, no one, no, no one in the room is going to be arrogant enough to say 100% of the time, right? But let's face the facts. I mean, 99% of the time I'm Right. Have you ever wondered how that is possible? I mean, honestly, think about the impossibility of that. That you have two, let's, let's assume two rational people, two rational thinking human beings, and it could be, again, it could be a married couple, it could be friends, neighbors, strangers. Two, we assume rational human beings, thinking people, and they have polar opposite opinions. Polar opposite viewpoints, polar opposite conclusions about the same thing. And they are both absolutely confident that they are right. It's impossible, but they are both absolutely confident that they are each right. And I don't just mean preference. That's not what I'm talking about. Just preference is a whole different category. I don't mean like, you know, this person likes this baseball team and this other person likes a different baseball team. I don't mean like I like raisins and you like the taste of sadness. It's not, that's not what I'm talking about. 
We have different preferences. I'm saying like you've got two people and they see that the Supreme Court has a decision to reverse Roe v. Wade and you have one person that celebrates it and another person that thinks that the world has come to an end. They see the same event completely differently. You have two people that uh, they, they get into these debates. You know, for the last two years, there's debates over masks and vaccines and lockdowns, all of these. And you've got one person here who has all of these conclusions about what could or should be done. And this person over here, completely different viewpoint. And they're absolutely confident that they're both right. You have Republicans and Democrats who accuse each other. This happens like on a daily basis. They both accuse each other of destroying democracy. You guys are destroying democracy. No, you're destroying democracy. Well, they can't both be right. And even now, some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, my team's right on that one, right? You have married couples. This, this happens all the time. You have married couples that come to different conclusions on how to spend money, how to save money. And they're absolutely confident that their way of doing it is right. I, I have offered, I've been married almost, we're heading into 25 years of marriage, and I have offered more than once, to fold the towels. My wife does laundry like every day. And it's just a constant factory of movement of laundry. And so I feel bad and I want to help. I, that's the basic, right? Folding towels is like the easiest thing of all. And I've offered and I have been refused every time because I apparently cannot fold towels the right way. Fine then, fold your towels, right? How is that possible? How is it possible? Sometimes, honestly, just sometimes it's just straight up, it's no more complicated than pride. It's no more complicated. Most of the time, it's no more complicated than just straight up pride. It's, it's this attitude, I'm smarter, I'm better educated, I have more experience, I'm more spiritual than you, therefore I'm right and you are wrong. Mac Davis wrote a song in 1980. It's hard to be humble when you are perfect in every way. Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer, and Garfield, the famous cat, both are credited with saying it's hard to be humble when you are as great as I am. We hear things like that. And we think, oh, that's so terrible. It's so terrible to be that arrogant and to be that prideful. But I wonder how often that we honestly may be guilty of that same heart attitude. Maybe we wouldn't verbalize it uh, as directly as Muhammad Ali. Sometimes we offer opinions that nobody asked for. This is what you should do. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I ask you what I should do? This is what you should do. If you were smarter, if you were as smart as me, that you would do it the way I do it. 
You critique, sometimes we critique the way other people do things. And I don't mean like in a helpful coaching situation. Like I coach junior high football and we critique technique and and if they don't run a route the right way, we critique that. We correct that. And that's healthy and that's good. It's the right role and relationship for that. But sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it is criticism and critique in a gossipy and condescending way. I heard this, I'll never forget, and it was from a Christian, said to another person, how many times did your mother drop you on your head when you were baby? A Christian said that to another human being. What are you doing? It's not okay to say stuff like that. Sometimes we, it's just pride. We, we, we think we know better than everyone else. We think we're smarter, that our tastes and preferences are, are superior to others. We say things like, who picked this paint color? Like, what, what were you smoking when you picked this paint color? Or why would you waste your money on that? If you were as good with money as I am, you would never waste your money on that. Or maybe, I don't know if we might say it out loud or not, but there's times when we may think like, you know, your view on politics, your view on economics, your view on all things COVID proves that you is stupid. And we might not say it out loud, but sometimes there's a heart attitude that says, everyone's an idiot but me because I'm awesome. I wonder what Jesus would say about a prideful heart attitude. You probably can guess but let's actually look. Go to Luke chapter 18. What would Jesus say about a prideful heart attitude? Luke chapter 18, look at verse 9. Jesus tells a story, a parable, to some people in the room who had great confidence in their own righteousness. Those who were very, very confident that they were Right, and not only that, they were right, but they also scorned everyone else. They looked down on everyone else because they're right, and these people are wrong, and they're stupid and idiots because they're not as right as me, right? And so there's a group of people that Jesus tells this story to, and that's their heart attitude, a prideful heart attitude. This is the story. Two men went to the temple to pray. That's good, right, to go church, to go to the temple, in this case, in the Jewish background, in the Jewish faith, to go and pray. That's a good thing. Well, one of them was a Pharisee. A Pharisee would have been an expert in the law. They, they knew all things about the Jewish law. They were uh, considered to be the spiritual leaders in the Jewish faith. The other was a despised tax collector. Tax collectors worked for the government. They worked for the Roman government and did exactly what their title implies. They collected taxes. Oftentimes, they were hated and despised, not just because you know, no one enjoys giving over their money to the government, but because they oftentimes would cheat and steal and, and collect more than what was owed. There's nothing they could do about it, nothing people could do about it. Now, I know that's hard to believe that the, that the government would have corrupt people working in it, but it's nothing new. And so people would, uh, they would, they would, despised tax collector. So you have this Pharisee who's supposed to be religious and good and all these things, 
and you have the tax collector, and they both go to pray. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. Wow. I don't cheat. You might, depending on the uh, version you have, that, that cheat there is about adultery. I don't, I don't cheat on my wife. I don't commit adultery. I'm not an adulterer. Uh, I, I don't sin. I don't commit adultery or steal. I'm sorry. That, that cheat is about stealing. And, and I certainly don't, uh, I'm, I'm not like this, this tax collector, this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I, I, I give you a tenth of my income. The tax collector, though, says he, he, stood, he stood at a distance. And he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as, as he prayed. Instead, it says he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me, I am a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, the sinner who just prayed, God, have merciful, be merciful to me, the sinner, not the, not the Pharisee, is the one who returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, those who humble themselves will, will be exalted don't gloss over who this parable is directed towards. Those who are confident that they are right and look down on everybody else who is wrong. And Jesus says, tells us who was actually justified before God. This is really interesting. It's the one who had done wrong things. The tax collector was in the wrong and he was there to confess it. He was there not to make excuses for it. He came humbly, seeking mercy, seeking forgiveness from God. He's not the one who had done all the right things and was super proud of himself for it. It's interesting. I think this Pharisee is a lot like people in our lives. We all have people in our lives, at least one, who they always know that they are right. They know it. They are right about everything. And they want other people to know they are right about everything. They're right about COVID. They're right about politics. They're right about money. They're right about style. They're right about parenting. They're right about how everything should be done. It's exhausting being around people who are always right about everything. And Jesus does not seem to be impressed with the Pharisee, does he? Why is that? I mean, honestly, why, why would that be? He doesn't steal from people. The tax collector does that. He doesn't steal from people. That's good, right? It's good. He doesn't steal. He doesn't cheat on his wife. That's good. I think we can agree that's good. He goes without eating so that he can pray twice a week. That's good. He gives 10% of his income to the Lord. Also, good. What exactly is the problem here? We just went through good, 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 good. What is the problem? The problem is his heart attitude. The problem is pride. The problem is not with the truth. The problem is not wanting to be right. As Christians, we believe in truth. 
We believe that God is the ultimate source of truth. We believe that God has the right to set standards for life. We believe that he has the right to set standards of what is right and what is wrong, to establish principles that he knows will make our lives better because he's God and we're not. I know sometimes people may see God's rules or his laws, his boundaries as a negative thing, but they're not. God's rules are wonderful. God's rules bring wisdom into our lives. God's rules help make life better. God's rules spare us from unnecessary pain that sin brings into people's lives. The rules are good. God's rules are wonderful, but rules and being right about things, that's not what changes people's hearts. The grace and love of Jesus Christ, that is what changes people's hearts. You know, it's just a fact about human nature that humility is way more attractive than arrogance and pride. Humility draws people towards what is right way more effectively than pride does. I'll give you an example. I pulled an example out of chapter 10 in this this book, Unoffendable, that I thought was really good. In chapter 10, the author describes his own moral excellence. And I don't know Brant Hansen personally, and, and you probably don't either. So I just want you to imagine. Let's imagine that we meet someone who is morally excellent. Imagine meeting someone who has cussed far less times than you have. Someone who exercises far more than you do, eats way healthier than you do, someone who is way more discerning in their entertainment choices than you are, They've been drunk. This person's been drunk less than you, unless you could tie with zero. Done less drugs than you, unless you can tie with zero. Done more to help the poor than you have. Been less promiscuous than you have. He got married as a virgin. Has less debt than you, unless you also are debt-free. Gives away more money than you. Serves God with more hours than you. So you meet this person who is morally excellent. How do you feel about this person? Would you be incredibly impressed and you're like, I really want to hang out with Mr. Perfect? Or do you want to punch this guy in the throat? The author asked this question in, in his book I thought was a really good question. Do, do people tend to love God more because of our list of moral accomplishments? I can tell you this. I can tell you that hypocrisy, which is saying one thing and doing another, that is a super big turnoff. We need truth. We need to live truth. We can't claim that we know truth and not live truth. That's hypocrisy, and that's a big turnoff for sure. It's important that we live what we say we believe, but 
just being right about truth, that's not what draws people towards the gospel. It's not enough to just be right. We need to put love and humility with it. If we don't have love and humility, you can be absolutely right, and all we're going to do is annoy people. It's a turnoff. You can be absolutely right in the wrong way. You're just going to come across as morally superior and arrogant. We need to be right, but we have to have love and humility with it. And, and we see that in 1 Corinthians. Would you look at 1 Corinthians 13? We had a, a wedding here yesterday, and we, we read through this passage. They, they left a really cool banner back there that has 1 Corinthians 13. And it's, it's one that we're familiar with. Any wedding you've ever gone to, you hear 1 Corinthians 13, and sometimes we've heard it so often that we, we don't really listen we don't really take the truth that is here and, and actively apply it. We need to do that. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of the angels, but did not love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Just noise, like Charlie Brown's teacher. That's all people are going to hear. If I had the gift of prophecy and understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, I know all the right answers to every Bible question you have. I know all the right answers to end-time prophecy. I know all the right answers to well, what's right and wrong about divorce and remarriage and what's appropriate. and what's, I know all the right answers. If I had with that such faith that I could move mountains, right? So you know all this stuff about the Bible. You've got this incredible faith. Should be admired, right? But don't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and, and even sacrificed my own body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And he goes on to describe love as being patient and kind and all these wonderful attributes that's not boastful and proud, it's not rude, it doesn't, it's not selfish. Without love, we accomplish nothing. Just being right is not enough. You may be absolutely right, but without love, no one cares. No one cares. You could do your devotions every day, never miss a day. Come to church every weekend. You don't, miss, you don't miss a weekend. You have all the right standards for sexuality. You have all the right answers for the Bible questions, even the tough ones. All the right doctrinal conclusions, and, and you live it all out perfectly. But if you look down on the other losers, if you look down on the spiritual slackers who just, for whatever reason, don't get it, if you don't demonstrate love and humility... People are not going to be interested in the heart-changing message of the gospel because that's not what they're seeing. All they're seeing is pride. John chapter 13, would you turn there with me? I think this is really important. In John chapter 13, here's the context. The, it's the Last Supper. Jesus is with his disciples, and 
they're having this last uh, meal together. He washes their feet. Remember this episode? Remember this scene? He washes their feet, this incredible demonstration of, uh, of not only humility and servanthood, but really it's a picture of, of forgiveness and grace because he, at that same meal, points out that Judas is going to betray him. He, he's, he points out that Peter's going to deny that he even knows. He knows these things are about to happen, still washes their feet and tells them, you guys, I've done this for you. You need to do it for each other. Right? So yes, a picture of servitude. Yes, a picture of humility. But it's a, it's a picture of grace. And in the context of all of that, knowing that Judas is about to leave and betray Jesus, knowing that Peter, before the, the next night comes and is done, uh, that he's going to deny he even knows who Jesus is, knowing that his friends are going to bail him in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing all of these things, he still treats him with this incredible love and humility. And then we get down to verse 33, and he says this to them, Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer, and as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So, now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Love each other. Not an option. It's a commandment. Love each other. And here's the standard of love. He says, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. To the same sacrificial level that Jesus loves us, that's, that's the kind of love we're supposed to have. Wow. Now look at this, verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How are people going to know that we are disciples? How are people going to know that we are followers of Jesus? Is it by how right we are in our conclusions about all the tensions going on in our country? Is it, is it how right we are with who we vote for, how right we are, and how we parent, and how we spend money? No, you may be absolutely right on all of that. But they will know that we are followers of Jesus by how well we love each other. Our refusal to be offended is what points people to the truth of the gospel, that, that we actually follow Jesus, that we belong to Him, that we want to pattern our lives, our heart attitudes after His. Plus, here's just a bonus. It's just a better way to live life. I know some people, you probably know some people that they're just, they're miserable. They just go through life angry about everything, like everything ticks them off. Everything. And it, it just not a, it's just not a great way to live life. It's better when we remember that God took out His wrath on Jesus for our sins. That's good, right? It's also really good to remember that Jesus took the wrath for other people's sins. Not just yours, not just mine. Jesus suffered enough to pay for your sins, my sins, enough to pay for the sins of, of other people. He suffered enough. And, and, and God's the judge, so he will, he will deal with other people's sin. Not that there's a pass in sin. 
But it's God's place. It's not my place. It's not your responsibility. Our mission from Jesus is to love people the way that God loves us. To share the truth of what Jesus is doing in our lives. How Jesus is transforming us through the power of His Spirit. That's the message of the gospel that we need to be sharing with people. And, And people just are not drawn to mere moral superiority. People are drawn towards love. People are drawn towards humility. Should we love the truth? Absolutely, we should love the truth. Should we seek to know the truth? Absolutely. Should we seek to, to, uh, to live out the truth? Yes. We, we should believe the right thing, live the right thing, reject the wrong. All of that is true. But just being right is not enough. We need to put love and humility with all of the God-given moral, ethical, life principles that we are uh, trying to live out. If we really want to make a difference, we have to have love and humility with truth. It can't get out of balance. Sound impossible? It, It sounds really hard, doesn't it? I admit to you, it sounds really, really hard to live this balance between truth and love, between right, being right, and being humble. Finding that balance is it's hard. But it can be done. You know how I know it can be done? Jesus did it. Think about it. Jesus never sinned. Like sometimes we think we're perfect. Sometimes we think like 99% of the time I'm right in these conversations. Right? We think that about ourselves. Jesus was actually perfect. Jesus never sinned. He was actually right about everything. And yet, people were drawn to him. Messed up people, people who had shortcomings and failures in their life, they wanted to be around Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was not just morally, ethically, doctrinally perfect. Yes, he was those things, but he was also humble and kind and loving and compassionate. He was not condescending. He was not condemning towards those who had blown it, who got it wrong. There's a story recorded in John chapter 8, and I think it presents this really interesting case study for how Jesus handled a situation where it was not enough to just be right. The Pharisees, we've already met a Pharisee at the beginning, so a group of these Pharisees, they brought a woman to Jesus. They drug a woman into the presence of Jesus who was caught in the act of adultery. Do you get that? Caught in the act. So was she half-dressed? Was she not dressed? You know, like she, if they drug her out of that situation and brought her in front of Jesus, I'm sure they weren't too concerned about whether or not she was fully dressed, right? So just, this is a terrible situation. She's absolutely uh, shamed and, and, and mortified, as you can imagine. Caught in the act of adultery, they drug her in front of Jesus, and the Pharisees said to Jesus, Jesus, the law of Moses 
commands that we stone this woman caught in the act of adultery, that we stone her to death. What do you say, Jesus? background, in case you don't know Roman law, they did not have the authority to stone this woman. That, the death penalty resided, that authority resided solely with the Roman government. So they were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to get him to say, no, don't stone her. Oh, you don't believe in the law of Moses. You are a terrible rabbi. Or, yes, uh, the law says, uh, stone her, let's stone her. Oh, now the Romans are going to come and take you off because you broke the law. Right? They were trying to trap Jesus. But let's just back away for a moment and let's take score. Get your scorecard out. The Pharisee, let's start with the Pharisees. Were they right? They were right. The Jewish law does command stoning to death for adultery. So on the scorecard, Pharisees... Right. How about the woman caught in adultery? What's her scorecard say? Wrong. She was in the wrong. And that's all that matters, right? Pharisees, right. Woman, wrong. Isn't that all that matters? Not according to Jesus. First of all, again, Jesus had no legal authority as a Jewish rabbi to stone this woman to death any more than in these Pharisees did. Now, here's why that's important. They knew it, Jesus knew it, everybody knew it, right? They didn't trick Jesus, everybody knew that they couldn't do this legally. Jesus could have just said that. He could have just said, guys, you don't have the authority to do that, I don't have the authority to do that, if you've got a problem with this woman, then do it the right way and take her to the courts. Done, but that's not what Jesus did. Jesus made a point. Jesus says, basically, you guys, you can be right in a very wrong way. And he told these guys, okay, whoever is without sin, you, you throw the first stone. Whoever is without sin, you throw the first stone. And one by one, they left. And Jesus was the only one left with this woman. And Jesus was truly the only one in this entire situation who truly is without sin. And Jesus said to her, I don't condemn you to death. Now go and sin no more. I just think this is fascinating. Jesus did not say to her in that situation, hey, you know what? It's totally fine. You be you. Go, go on and treat sex as like a casual activity with whomever you find attractive, totally fine, you go be you. That's not what he said. He did not ignore the fact that, that sin had made a mess in her life. But Jesus also did not pile shame on her either. He treated her with love, with respect, with compassion, with humility. And I look at that situation and I think, I wish I was more like Jesus. I just wish I was more like Jesus because I want to know the truth. I want to love the truth. I want to live the truth. But I don't want to be right in the wrong way. I want to learn from Jesus how to be humble and kind and compassionate and, and patient. I don't want to just be right. 
in the wrong way. And sometimes that can happen quicker than we would like to admit. Sometimes there's people that we, they're, they're in the wrong. They're absolutely in the wrong. And sometimes, though, our offense at the sin, our offense or our hatred towards sin, if we're not careful, can blur into contempt and hatred towards the sinner, towards the person. And that's when we've crossed a line where being right's not enough, that we are right in the wrong way. We need to be like Jesus. How, how does that happen? How do we become more like Jesus? By being right in the right way, by becoming unoffendable. First off, we need the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. We can't do this on our own. We admit it's hard. <laughs> yeah, we can't do this on our own. The gospel teaches us that we need the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to make us right with God. The gospel also teaches that we need the power of His resurrection, the power of His Holy Spirit who lives inside the believer. When we trust Christ as our forgiver to make us right with God, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, and we need His power to trust in His power to transform our hearts, to transform our minds so that we can become like Jesus. We can't just squeeze our eyes really tight and become like Jesus. That's not how it works. We need the Holy Spirit. We have to decide every day, today I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not just going to go do my own thing. I'm going to surrender my will to God's will. So that's the first thing. We, we need to recognize, I can't do this without, without Jesus. Secondly, we have to decide to have a daily attitude that starts with, I'm forgiven, instead of, I'm right. When we start with an attitude of, I'm right, if that's the starting point for our heart attitude, that is what leads to moral superiority that's what leads to becoming judgmental towards others. That's what leads then, if you become this judgmental person, I'm right, I'm right, you're wrong. Why can't you be more like me? If that's the heart attitude that we start with, well, you are going to be easily angered and easily offended because these people just don't get it. But if we start with a heart attitude of I'm forgiven, well, now that leads to feeling more profound gratitude in our heart for the grace that we have received from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have more gratitude in our heart. That leads to us becoming more loving. That leads to us becoming more humble. And when we are more loving and humble, boy, we're going to do a much better job overlooking offenses. A much better job getting rid of our anger quickly. Not enough to just be right. Let's remember that we are forgiven. That will help us become humble. That will help us become loving. We need Jesus to help us with this. But we have to decide that's who we want to be. We want to be more like Jesus. We want to live a Jesus-centered life.